you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul, and joining me today is a special guest host, Anita Bowman. So, Anita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure, Andrew. I sure can. So, my name's Anita Bowman, and uh, I'm in the finance department of the Edmonton Community Foundation. I have been for a number of years and enjoy it thoroughly. Yeah. So, are you technically the longest standing employee at ECF? Um, I think I might have that title. Uh, It's probably almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so where was the offices when you first started working uh, with us here? When I first started with ECF, uh, we were in the Royal Bank building on the corner of Jasper Avenue and 101st, I think, 101st, yes, mm-hmm. on the seventh floor. Yeah, and how many people were on staff back then? Well, six, I think. Right, and we're up around 30-ish now, I guess. I think 30-ish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so you've really seen uh, the foundation uh, grow over the years. Uh, w- yes, we had to actually um, expand when we were uh, first in the Royal Bank building. We were just one side of it, and then there was a renovation. We took over a kind of an L shape of that building. So we did expand before we moved to the Hilltop House. Right, which is like this amazing historic mansion uh, overlooking the, the River Valley. It is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do remember walking over with plants, you know, that we didn't want to put in the moving van, walking them over and setting them up. And yeah, it was a fun time. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it is very great to have you with us. And um, we have a very exciting show lined up for everybody today. Uh, so maybe let's get to that. Okay, so this broadcast is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. And Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds here at Edmonton Community Foundation, and these funds generate money to support charities in the city and beyond. And on this podcast, we like to share the stories from the spaces where those endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well-endowed. On this episode... We continue with our special series, It Takes a Community. That's right. This is the third installment of the series created by Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal. Without further ado, let's turn it over to Hunter. Tansi, hello. Welcome to It Takes a Community, a well-endowed podcast series about inspirational leaders and the communities of people, places, and ideas that have supported them along the way. I'm your host, Hunter Cardinal, and from a young age, I was taught that my people, the Nehiao, or Cree people, have always understood ourselves as bound together in a vast web of interconnectedness. As my career as an actor and storyteller developed, I began to cross paths with more and more incredibly accomplished people, and when asked, almost every single person time and again echoed the voices of my elders in crediting their successes to their networks of support. This podcast is my own quest to explore what it means to succeed and support each other in succeeding in an inherently interconnected world and learn how it truly does take a community. 
Our guest this episode is Linda Duncan, who really needs no introduction for most folks that live in Edmonton, as she is the environmental lawyer and politician who has been the Member of Parliament for Edmonton Strathcona since 2008. I've actually been lucky enough to have known Linda for quite a while as she became a fixture in my life through my dad's, Louis Cardinal's, work. I remember this fiercely smart and generous person appearing just as I was starting high school and beginning to learn about politics and indigeneity and feeling quite quickly that the bar for allyship was being set by her through each conversation I had with her about what she was doing on the national and international stage. As I got a little older, I became more and more curious about the ingredients that must have come together to form such a person. So the conversation you're about to listen to was genuinely a huge treat for me as Linda shared stories about her family growing up, the spark that led her to engage with environmental work, and the community that rallied around her as she transitioned from advocacy and activism to politics. I left the conversation convinced that the courage to make real change can only come from patience, listening, and humility. And I hope you do too. Okay, awesome. So I'm super excited um, to have this conversation with you. Um, and uh, yeah, like you have such a strong sense for protecting the environment and environmental policy and um, giving the community an opportunity to have their voice in that you know, process that we have as a, as a Canadian democracy. Where did that come from? You know, it's such a, a, an interesting question. And I'm not a person who's really ever, you know, sat back. I mean, some people like write stories of their life in each phase, you know, how they've documented and I achieved this. Chapter and I go, one. I, yeah. and I think, like, heck you did. It was that whole circle of people around you that did that. <clears throat> the book should be about all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was lucky that I grew up in a family um, I call it, we like to be in the bush. So we continuously, as the the city expanded, we kept moving to the edge. <laughs> and, you know, you're young. You don't think about asking your parents, why do we keep moving to the edge? But I grew up, you know, in ravines. Really? Uh, playing with kids, building huts, wandering around. I can remember there were uh, people that lived in sort of mud huts and sold rags down below really? Saskatchewan Drive in Belgravia. And that was actually, Lee Hall Stables was a farm then. And we had horses and cows and pigs wandering into our yard all the time. And, and Saskatchewan Drive just was a dirt road. And so every uh, Victoria Day, everybody kept the Christmas tree. And we would have big bonfires anyway. Really? Eventually the mothers put it into it <laughs> because it got big, bigger and bigger. And what so, could have gone wrong, though? I mean... What could have gone wrong? Yeah, oh, well, yeah. the last time they did it, they went out to somebody's farm. And okay, they wait, wait. The barn on story? fire. Okay. Really? <laughs> My dad, I think he always liked just burning things. When they moved out to 40 acres near Devon, he had like this pit. <laughs> and he would just like burn things. And my younger sister said, Oh, my Barbie dolls. Dad, you realize what those are worth? <laughs> so anyway, he just kept him occupied <laughs> out there the in the country by, by himself. So, and you know, my dad was, was a duck hunter. And of course, uh, we loved eating them. But every time he'd come home with them, he'd have us pluck them and we'd cry. Look at the Poor geese. Oh right. my gosh. But anyway, I love so that. to this day, I still can't really tell one duck from another. I should have learned more from my father. And I grew up every summer of my life at Lake Wabam. Yeah. So I feel very privileged. And so the first year um, that I had to have a job in town, I suffered. And I still suffer. You know, as a politician, you're expected to do all these things all summer. My staff just asked me, they said, 
So we can take July off. I said, how about July and August? <laughs> like for me, it's summer. I'm in the country. Yeah. And I've bought this old tumble down clabbered cottage back at the lake. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just where I want to be. I want to hear the loons. I want to paddle out in the lake. To me, that's where I want to be. I love that. But the connection probably to indigenous people, to me, was just normal because um, my grandfather, and I didn't find out till later that Solomon, I don't even know his full name, that was a Métis settlement at uh, Moonlight Bay. Mm. And uh, that was Solomon's territory. And he gardened for my grandfather. And then when they created the park, they kicked him out. I don't know what happened to Solomon's family. They finally came back and did a claim when one of the coal-fired power plants was expanding. Mm. And so that's when I discovered the Métis were there. But Alexis Simon, Simon Alexis, and to this day, I can't remember which way it goes. He was an elder who lived way out in the point um, beyond our cottage. And he would come by regularly with his grandkids. And he had these lovely long gray braids. And our family always had a great relationship with him. And uh, again, I feel guilt. Like, why didn't I maintain a connection with that family? I'm sure he could could have used support. So for me growing up, that was totally normal. Like, you have a respectful relationship. Um, and there would be, we would we had a community hall, and uh, the Paul First Nation, the Paul Band then would come and do their dances. So I grew up hearing the drum. So, so for me, you know, when I hear that, that's, that's totally, that's part of who I am. So, and my mother was always, you know, Indigenous rights, Indigenous rights. My father was a lawyer and... You know, that circle wasn't quite so yeah, the same thinking <laughs> as my mother. And so my I became the embodiment of everything my mother always wanted to do. You should do something about that. You should do something <laughs> about that. And uh, it was really her that uh, persuaded me that I should not continue in fine arts. And then I should uh, go to law school so that I could earn some decent money. So what did I do? Become a public interest lawyer? Not making any money. It's what you but do. It's I mean, you're talking to an to actor, so I, I yeah. totally get that. But uh, yeah. so what... <laughs> What was the, you're looking back now, like, what were some of the most important memories that you had, you know, at Wappamook? Just being able to run free. I mean, yeah. all day long, every day. What was Mother the day would just say, like get that? out, right? Um, I can remember, like, the train track ran behind us. And, of course, nobody's allowed to go in the trestle. Of course, you always want to be a daredevil and go into the trestle and you want to crush pennies. Um, but we would just wander all day long. You know, they were all old, clabbered cottages where people had been, you know, multi-generations. Sadly, a lot of that is disappearing. And we had a public path, which was, I think, originally, that was originally, of course, Paul banned lands. Mm. And over time, Indian Affairs sold off that land on them. So they had a lot of land from Lake Wabamum all the way to Saskatchewan River. Hmm. And, you know, ghost stories around the bonfire, running, screaming home in the dark, um, paddling around in the in the rowboat, just, you know, free as a bird, having an animal cemetery. So when um, my brother moved back to um, Edmonton, and his niece, his my niece, his daughter was four, and uh, my father had died, um, I th- and he'd lived in the country, and we had to sell it because neither of us could afford to keep it. We had to have a place in the country, so... We went, looked everywhere, and the only place I wanted to go was Kapaswan, because Kapaswan is still quite forested and wild. And we're walking along with my little niece, and she finds a little dead vole. She said, I have to bury that. I have to bury it at Animal Cemetery. Don't worry. We'll find it on the way back. You think we could find that vole? And then she would just burst in tears. 
you, we don't have grandpas. I'll never have an animal cemetery again. So I thought, all right, that's it. I have to buy this cottage. So I used my entire inheritance and bought this old cottage, which is still barely, barely standing. Oh and God. that's just, that's who we are. Um, I, you know, I just, and of course, my brother lives near Ravine in Belgravia, and I live near Ravine in, in Mill Creek, and and we have to have our piece of the woods. Uh, when my brother had a uh, SPCA rescue dog, every time I'd come home from uh, Parliament, I'd borrow the dog mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, yeah. just walk in, in, in the ravine, hope to find a coyote. So if there was even a vestige of a coyote down there in the meadow, Sunshine, who's a great big black mm-hmm. dog, roar home. She, oh she was a big, big chicken. So... That's why I went to law school. I wanted mm. to work on environment, and I wanted to work with Indigenous people. When I graduated, in a moment of foolishness, um, I wrote a letter to Indian Affairs saying I would like to work there. And the best thing that ever happened to me was they wrote back to me and said, we don't need a lawyer at this time. And I looked at the letter, and I thought, I never said I want to be a lawyer. Mm. So thank heavens they never hired me. So um, off and on, I've been really fortunate to work with Indigenous people. I worked for only one year at, in the Legislative Council, and of course then it was conservative government, mm-hmm. and I was not enamored with drafting their legislation. And so I ended up working at the Social Planning Council for four years, and it was out of that uh, where I really got to, um, at that time I was living in Rossdale, in, in Ross Flats, mm-hmm. and Ross Flats, like all the Valley communities, was being torn down by City Council. So Riverdale, Rossdale, Skunk Hollow, uh, Cloverdale, and um, ended up organizing all the communities. Mm. Uh, we had uh, a newspaper that we did for the whole uh, whole River Valley. Um, we got brought the festivals back in the summer. People showing their wares and their plants and and uh, and so forth. And we would have dances with fiddles in the old uh, schoolyard. And I got a small grant from uh, Alberta Heritage, and we wrote the Living Heritage Park Plan for Rossdale. So through our efforts, we actually managed to keep the city. All of Rossdale was supposed to just be expansion water treatment. Mm. And um, I'm so excited when I hear people talking again about restoring the, the, uh, um, the old power plant because that's what our idea was. I mean, this was 1978, mm. and still it hasn't happened. And so it does, it does need to happen. So I don't think a lot of people who are living in the newer parts of Cloverdale, even in, in Rossdale and Riverdale, even understand how hard we all worked then. We, yeah. we brought back Donald Ross. Um, that was really the origin of, of uh, Northern Light Theater. And Katie Langs, one of her band members, lived next door to me, and, and uh, it was just really fun. So we did a lot of theater, um, <clears throat> and I also got on the board of Catalyst Theater. Wow. But we did a lot of um, teaching people how to go to City Hall. But uh, one of the actors would dress up at Don- as Donald Ross, and once we delivered a wreath, a black wreath, to the, to the mayor's door, and, and uh, we would often do you know, theatrics at City Hall. It's all kind of boring now. People need to get back to really, you know. Magic prop theater. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, so was, wh- it was fun. This is all like really, what I'm, what I'm fascinated about is that's all very industrious work. That, that's all organizing the community. That's all um, researching, understanding what's important. Was that always a thing that you did? Where did that come from? You know what I think? I'm thinking that one of my grandmothers. Um, okay, dish. You know, I keep trying to think of where did this come from. I remember my, 
my parents were both born in Edmonton, and I grew up with the stories, you know, how uh, my father and his buddies and uh, my uncle would do things like throw things on the tracks, because I lived in Garneau, and they would put things on the track, the streetcar came over, all kinds of bad stories. And uh, my mother lived on the other side of the river, and how they used to have swimming in a Red Cross testing was across the river. So I grew up with these stories all, all the time and the stories at the lake. And so Edmonton really meant a lot to me, the way, the way that it was. And uh, that's probably why I decided when I lived in Rossdale, to me, it wasn't work. Um, you know, we had a great community down there and everybody was involved and uh, there were a lot of elders that lived down there. And part of what I did was I wrote the history of, of Rossdale and documented right where the indigenous cemetery was, where they had taken out the soldiers' bodies and left the indigenous there. And then finally, they designated that place on uh, when you come over the, over the bridge. Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> but right. But that's where they used to train the, uh, the buffalo hunting horses down there. That's where the original fort was. So I've always been interested in the history. You know, I come from a father confederation. I come from an Irish princess who, who married the pirate and landed in Newfoundland. So I've always been full of these stories. It means a lot to me, place and, and the history of it. So to me, it was totally normal that I would work with the communities to, you know, to recognize the beauty of those river flat communities. And, and, but eventually, I got inspired because I had said, when, when I was in school, there was one course in environmental law that was water law. But that's what I wanted to do, was to do environmental law and represent people and deal with industrial development in Alberta. So I finally um, got somebody to encourage me, and I applied for the funding to the Law Foundation. And, and I still remember at the table them saying to me, now, dear, are you sure you're asking for enough money? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, $40,000 a year. Who needs more than that, right? <laughs> and and so we set up the Law Center. And... Uh, Thereafter, my, my goal was is to strengthen the laws in our province and federally, but most importantly, give people the right to be heard. So I got a small grant from Albert Environment before I applied to the Law Foundation, mm. basically to document where in the, in, uh, the country um, were there opportunities for people to get assistance if they're intervening in, in a project. And, uh, and I documented that and sub submitted that to, to Alberta Environment. I used that to apply to the Law Foundation. So I have believed in that everywhere I've worked. When I worked in Yukon, um, I eventually got involved in the land claims. I worked in Bangladesh, Indonesia. I worked with the local environmental law associations, mm -hmm. uh, with local communities, talking about the rights to appear in court, the rights to have a, have a say in decision-making. That's just been... The, the, and that, that's why I tabled the Environmental Bill of Rights four times in Parliament. That's what I profoundly believe in, is the sense of community. People have a right to say um, what's going to happen in their community. You know, that's one of the things that I feel is one of the, I don't want to say drawbacks, but it's something that I really want to learn is that discipline to create this stuff. And I find it really hard. Like, it's just... For me, like putting in that effort is like you're you're putting yourself out there. You're opening yourself up for criticism. I don't want to ever finish things because then I'm like, well, then I'm gonna, you know, people are gonna go after that, and then they're gonna attack me, and it gets really weird. Like like very, <laughs> very fundamental core beliefs. Was 
creating this stuff something that you found easy for you? Was it something that didn't t- take into consideration? Like how, what inspired you to keep creating this stuff? Because I'm sure like very few people have been like, you know what, I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to articulate that, and then I'm going to create uh, an environmental law center, and then I'm going to continue, and then you just continue making But, you it. know, but I, but I didn't. And, you know, I had a lot of uh, fellow law students who said, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and then I'm going to get a big firm, and then I'm going to be appointed to judge. And I'm like, hmm. that's, that's not who I am. I always just looked for an opportunity, um, I guess, to, to give. And that's why I felt was so fortunate that I got that job at the Edmonton Social Planning Council. Because the first couple of years I worked there, it was all in women's rights. And that's when women's rights was really just developing in Canada. And I helped to found the National Action Committee in the States of Women. Um, there was a, a local group in Edmonton. And I still remember, I must have that magazine somewhere, is I was asked to uh, co-host a panel because Katie Curtin, Marxist Leninist had come back from China and she wanted to talk about women in China. You know, I was so naive and I, I chair this. And apparently, when their magazine came out, there was a picture of me on that. <laughs> wow. Oh, they're Marxist Leninist. So, you know, I've never really been into big P politics, but I just thought, well, this is interesting and they want me to, to co host that. And I also helped to found the Rape Crisis Center in Edmonton. Um, I work with a group to try to strengthen property rights. Um, for women in Alberta. So lots of things like that. But really, in the background, what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to do environmental law. Um, before I set up the law center, I I was also a member of Save Tomorrow Post Pollution, which hmm. was a great group. Uh, Lucien Royer, Jean Pelin, very active in that, Louise Swift. And uh, they would do something like every summer, they would paddle down the Athabasca River. And then they you know, to the original oil sands sites and take photographs and, and publish those. They had a, a a contest to submit your, your dirty picture and whatever. And Save Tomorrow Post Pollution wrote a letter to the Minister of Environment every day. They had like a garage full of correspondence. I said that to somebody the other day. They said, in Saskatchewan, I was meeting in Saskatoon with people, like, what more can we do? And I said, well, do that. Write a letter every day. And they're going to have to respond. So I think that... Uh, I think we've lost a lot of the drive for grassroots development. Uh, there was sort of this movement uh, later in the 80s into the 90s with this professionalism. So a lot of people who were sort of, you know, underground activists got a job in government and got a job in some kind of entity. And so I'm, I'm delighted to see now youth now coming forward like Greta Thunberg, you know, just speaking from the heart and really resonating with people. Um, I'm looking forward to not being a parliamentarian anymore and really feel free to to say what I say, but mostly to help other people to say and do what, what they want to do. Hmm. When you're thinking about early influences for people who um, provided that example for you, who comes to mind or, or even what comes to mind? Because, you know, I'm interested in like who was... Who are you looking at? Be like that person's going off and creating stuff. Like I could leave them in a room for a while, and then come out, and there's a whole like (laughs) judicial system that's been set up, or there's like a a, you know an activism group that's happening there, and I just left them alone for five minutes. Like (laughs) who who was that for you? You know, I don't ever really think about an individual inspiring me. Yeah, Um, it was more the circle of people. Really, because what we did was we also created, I think, in 1979, we created the Canadian Environmental Network. 
And before that, environmentalists across the country would come once a year and have a meeting with the environment minister. And this was a wide array of people working in toxins or save their local creek, whatever. And a small group of us thought, this is a friggin' waste of time. First of all, the minister has the power as the energy minister, not the environment minister. So a small group of us from Ottawa, B.C., and here, we organized this network. And then we formed networks in each of the provinces and the territories. And eventually persuade the government to give us a small amount of money so people could communicate. And what we were fed up with, the quote-unquote national groups that were usually in Toronto or, or Montreal or Ottawa, we said, they're not national. They don't speak for us. We need to have the voice of the people out in the local area, you know, the little natural group in, in Red Deer and, and so forth. And that lasted for a long time. Sad to say, John Baird, when he became environment minister, yanked that money. The first thing that I did when McKinnon was appointed the Liberal Environment Minister, I wrote to her, and I said, there used to be this fabulous network, and if you really want to communicate and want the voice of people, please restore that. And she never has. Hmm. So governments love to handpick and choose. I'll give them a contract and feed, and don't really want to hear from the great unwashed public. And I think that's what we need to have happen again. Hmm. Let the Gretas of the world speak out. I mean, kids are really concerned about their future. And um, I think they need a lot more people mentoring them and just encouraging them. I mean, I've always found my role is not so much to be the upfront speaker, although I would do that from time to time. Um, it was more to give people the skills. And so at the Law Center, what we did a lot of is teaching people what their rights are. So with one hand, we would try to push in the legislation to give people the right to be heard, the right of access to lawyers and experts, but then match one community up with another community because that's most who they would trust and then and then understand. And in many ways, I'd like to, to go back to, to doing that. I also had the privilege of working with Indigenous communities, and I continue to do that. One of my most rewarding experiences is working with the Melody Lupine, with the Mikasu, and her hard work to try to protect, protect the Peace Athabasca Delta. And, man, she's incredible. So that's where I really see the incredible work coming from now is the young Indigenous people with the elders in their community. And the best that I can do is just doing anything I can just to give support to that or be a voice for that, you know, in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what needs to continue. But we need more of them stepping forward and getting into the House of Commons. Yeah, that makes <clears throat> sense. And one thing that I'm starting to see is you have this ability to create a community kind of wherever you're going and then really leverage them to do things. And for me, what as an actor, what I was, I was talking with a, a, a good friend in, in New York right now. And I was like, okay, so you're on Broadway, you're doing the show. How do you like, how do you build that community for you? Like, what does a day to day look like? How do you like, for me, what hit me upside the head was, there's like a profound loneliness that you can get when you're away from your people, your community, from your home, yeah. from that place. And like, and not, and I, st this is still a question that I have. So this is just kind of Hunter asking Linda, um, how do you build that? Like, what, did you ever feel alone? How do you make yourself feel grounded in a sense of community and not kind of get lost in what I would describe as just like, just self, like just isolating yourself and, and. Well, 
I never felt that way when I was at the Environmental Law Center. Mm. We had this circle of people right across Canada. Yeah. And at one point, we had an alliance with Americans, too, real crazy oh, Americans. Oh, yeah. So we would all get together in the Kootenai Plains. Um, where it became tough is when I worked overseas. Well, I because I was so outspoken about enforcement, um, Environment Canada said, well, why don't you come and be our chief of enforcement? I was like, what do I know? And so actually what I did was cause the rebellion. Things always happened after me, Classic right? I was at the way. chief yeah. level. And as I was leaving, I was just there on an executive interchange, like cause usually with somebody from Imperial Oil or something. And um, I, I wanted to tell the, this, the deputy minister, look, what you need to do is you need to separate out enforcement. It needs to be separate and independent of, of the guys who have a friendly relationship with industry. And the last day I was there, the directors rural engineers did not want me to have that meeting but I did have that that meeting I had an option of trying to apply for the job to be the full-time one or take a job at Dalhousie University where half a year I would teach environmental law there and the other half I was in Indonesia helping to set up their enforcement system so I opted to do that because I thought these guys are never going to hire me mm-hmm. because my mindset was different than them after I left then it became director level and so I had a staff of one and a half and uh, now it's like huge. But my uh, um, pals, even after that less than one year there, were lifetime friends because they were the regional enforcer guys out in the region. And they couldn't believe it when they had somebody at headquarters. You believe in enforcement? So we, we bonded. So I think by always just sort of following what I believed in, where the loneliness was, was at Dalhousie. Mm. Because I've often found this because I'm a single woman. In a place like Nova Scotia, family's everything. So I was an anomaly. You know, people would not really invite me over because you know, I didn't have a family, didn't have a husband. And so I would get quite, quite lonely there. The same in Indonesia. You know, I would walk around the neighborhood thinking, I wonder what's going on in those houses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a bit of a circle of friends, which was an anomaly because everybody else I was working with were sort of seconded from government. And I really, really wasn't. So I got involved in the environmental community there, who actually organized, ultimately, after I was gone, the quiet revolution and overthrow the government. Yeah. It was environmentalists who did that. Um, <laughs> the same in Bangladesh, right? It was, it was tough because, you know, I'm staying in a little guest house and from time to time there might be somebody else I, I knew there. So it's hard going into those other communities because you're never really part of that community. And I would just go in and out there. But I did live in Indonesia um, two and a half years, and that, that was kind of lonely. Yeah. And it was really tough, you know, when I was first elected because for how many years? Six, seven years? I was the only one representing Alberta and Saskatchewan for yeah. the NDP. Yeah. Like, I was it. Yeah. So... Thank heavens for Dennis Bevington, who was then the Northwest Territories NDP representative. And he and I totally bonded, and I totally bonded with his wife, and we're lifelong friends. We actually knew each other way back in the late 70s, early 80s. Francois Paulette, who became the chief there, I think after that, and he and I worked together fighting the slave Hydro Dam. And um, Dennis got elected a year before I did, and we hung out. In fact, at one point, we even lived in a in an old church manse together with some other colleagues. 
and I really missed him. But he and I fought with our party because there were so-called regional caucuses, one for BC, one for Quebec, one for the Maritimes, because there was all these members. So we fought for and we got the Prairie North Caucus. So we had two from Winnipeg and me for Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Dennis for the North. And to my delight, in our caucus now, we had uh, have two from Saskatchewan. And wonderful Georgina Jolibois, feisty Dene, Georgina Jolibois, and then the very feisty, capable uh, Romeo Saganesh, the Cree from, from Quebec. So, you know, Romeo kind of does his thing, but we get along well. But Georgina, I just love I I hung out with her last summer in Saskatchewan Delta. Have you ever been there? No, I haven't. Okay, oh tell you me know, about it. Nobody Paint in it. Canada, I swear, knows about the Saskatchewan Delta. You know, some people now, because there's a lot of attention, the piece at the basket, which is magnificent, which goes right into the Mackenzie, right? But the Saskatchewan Delta, and it was devastated by two dams that the Saskatchewan government built years, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it's just magnificent. And their Cumberland House, I think, is one of the first Indigenous communities um, in, in the prairies and some vestige of it. And there's a strong Métis community there and there's a, there's a First Nation there. But it was just a magnificent area and those dams just totally changed the regime. So there's hardly any animals there anymore, wow. any bird life. And uh, they fought and fought and tried to stop the, those um, dams from rebuilt. The federal government did nothing. And Saskatchewan has just relicensed them. Anyway, it was really fun to travel with her because, and you know, she along with Romeo fought to be able to speak their languages in Parliament. And that is now possible. Um, they're still struggling, struggling to try to find enough interpreters across the country, and I think they're struggling to find uh, Dene, but it's so powerful. So when I was in uh, Saskatchewan Delta, of course, she's speaking Dene. And you could just see, you know, this is who uh, Georgina is. So, you know, it, it's such, I feel so privileged to have experienced that and then to work with people who are actually fighting for the right for people to come to Parliament and to share their stories and share their stories and speak in, in their language. And then, and then we get to hear it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I get sidetracked no, there. No, this is, this is, and so one of the things that I've, because I, I haven't really figured out a way of, um, of really nailing how to kind of create that community or even what to do. And it's just like, okay, well, no one's, no one's free right now. So what do I do alone? Um, one of the things that I actually did very often um, when I was going through, um, university and like well into my adulthood. Uh, I think, <laughs> anyways, um, it was, uh, I would listen to um, the Lord of the Rings audiobook. Um, just, I would just go through that series just again and again. And I would just be there. I'd be just, you know, going through each book every night for like 45 minutes before <laughs> bed. And I would just fall asleep to it. And I started going through the Silmarillion. Now, uh, for like trying to make plans with people and trying to like have. Um, like uh, standing like um, dates with my friends of like let's make some steaks let's go out for like fancy let's treat ourselves um, what kind of stuff do you find you were doing in that did you find a way to kind of cope with that that feeling of just kind of like oh I'm alone because for me I'm just like if I feel that loneliness it's kind of like there's a, like oh, I was talking with someone about this recently but it feels like there's a black hole in my heart and I feel like I'm always trying to get away from it. And mm -hmm. and how do how do how do you feel that? Do you have that? Do you feel like that's the same thing? This is a very multifaceted question, but 
Um, you know what big mistake that I made when I was living in those countries? And this is the unfortunate thing, is those projects overseas, and I don't believe in those parachute in, write a little report, go. I think that any kind of international assistance and working, people should be there for a longer time period. Mm. I didn't get language training. So I learned a tiny bit of Indonesian. It would have totally transformed my existence. Right? I mean, it was just stupid. I should have intentionally demanded that I have language training. It's the same in Bangladesh. I mean, that's what Bangladesh means. Bangla, their language. That is what they fought for. That is why they wanted to be independent uh, from Pakistan. And uh, did I learn Bangla? No, I didn't. But they didn't offer that training to me. Um, one person on our project had worked there before, and he spoke Bangla, and that totally opens up. So even though I didn't think that I cocooned, I probably did, but not intentionally. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have been a totally different experience. You had mentioned Great Bear Lake. Mm. What happened there? You I had a fantastic summer. Yeah, okay. I went to the fish the camp in yeah. Great Bear Lake, and I went up there uh, with, with one friend. This was uh, early before Nin law school, 1969, right? 1969, I think it was. That was a good time. That was a <laughs> 1968, good time. I worked in Montreal, sold oh, cool. uh, flowers on the I street. I would have loved to have been around at that time, because that, yeah. uh, that was when the white paper came out. And oh. then... Yeah, and then the red paper shortly after. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, it'd be interesting to intersect those. I know. You know, then old Montreal was connected to Montreal. They hadn't built all those freeways and everything. No way. And I so regret that I didn't take more photos. And I keep trying to conjure in my head there must be archival photos somewhere. So my image of what uh, Montreal was then. And of course, our confines were quite small. And of course, we lived in a, um, there was, um, four of us that went to Montreal in the summer and we stayed in a men's fraternity in the summer and we had a crazy circle of, of friends guys from university and not not university um, anyway that's another sidebar yeah yeah um, so the next summer we uh, two of us went to Great Bear Lake in a fish camp and I still you know I should have followed up with this poor guy there was a great big burly guy he was a theater student and they made him be the one that cleaned fish, and he hated fish. I don't know why he ended up in a fish camp. I felt so badly for him. Why did you go? What, what, what made you, like... I'd always been drawn to the north, and I thought, what a fantastic opportunity to go up there, and it just left this indelible experience. That was the year they landed on the moon, so we were just listening to it on the, on the radio. Whoa. Yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, and, you know, we would have, you know fires with the you know the northern trout so fantastic it was just it was just beautiful we were totally a little isolated camp and it was there that you were like okay this is i need to figure out a way to hmm. like kind of have this be a part of my life in terms yeah. of like protecting uh, having these communities be able to have the capacity to protect themselves is that where that came from i don't know if it was so so direct or it was just kind of like this is another amazing thing yeah yeah I love that, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really wonderful. A sad thing, I remember Joe Tax, he was so excited they paid them in cash, and he went roaring around his motorboat, and all the money blew. <laughs> oh, <Lake>. my gosh. <laughs> and, you know, I would... Made it and rain. yeah. I got... A, here's a sad thing. I got this incredible pair of moccasins that somebody brought 
beautiful embroidery. And when I was uh, living in Ottawa, actually in Gatineau, right on the river when I was chief of enforcement, um, I had a friend come and pack me up because I drove to Halifax. And by mistake, she threw out the bag that those moccasins were in. And every time I go, I just went through the McCord Museum and an incredible embroidery there. And I look and I go, oh, my. <laughs> the so I'll have, to try to, yeah. I'll have to try to get somebody up there to one day make me another pair. Yeah. Oh, and plus um, they gave me a little prayer book with the syllabics. That is so. What are, what are the syllabics? Was it the was it the priests that came up with the syllabics, or did the indigenous people themselves? Because there's all the a, different languages seem to have their own syllabics. There's a really interesting conversation that's happening about that. Um, from what I've been told, is the syllabics are actually like thousands of years older. Ah. Um, they um, the the stories that are being passed around are actually being passed around by non-indigenous peoples, and you know, history is who you know, writes the stories. Um, but the syllabic markers are thousands of years old. Um, they're an incredibly intricate system of like, um, not only um, phonetic sounds. Can you read those? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I'm learning how to read it. Yeah. Me, my sister, and my dad are, are like learning a little bit. I could look at a word and like maybe pick out like a couple sounds. But what's really cool is that it's so directly tied to our governance and our, um, our, our spiritual beliefs as well. And it's, um, it's something that's written in a very particular way that is directional. Wow. So you always start writing this. Um, they're called star charts um, or spirit markers. That's what the syllabics are called. And you always have to write it starting going out into the east. And each symbol of like 48 has a specific teaching attached to it. Wow. And it's like such a fascinating, like um, beautiful writing system. And it, and, and it connects you straight to the stars it connects you straight to the earth it's it's incredible so i i, I love it and oh. and i i wish i could read mm. it a little bit better but yeah it's 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 really cool yeah sorry yeah. i nerded out there for a second but um <laughs> one thing that that is interesting is what were your what were your circle of friends and and colleagues that you were working with thinking when you started going from activism and policy work and, and advocacy into more of um I guess going into the system and starting to work on enforcement, going, working with the government, working with um, on a national level to um, an international level. What was that like for you? You know, for the, the close circle I had here, they understood that and, and stayed in touch with me. But a lot of the environmental community just sort of abandoned me. Yeah. I found that really weird. I mean, when I became the chief of enforcement, I thought, well, here I am. It's great. But nobody ever contacted me. Oh, do this, do that. And it was the same when um, I became the first head of law and enforcement for the NAFTA Environment Commission, which was an independent secretariat attached to the NAFTA. So I was working with Mexicans and Americans. And um, because I had the background that I had, I didn't need to contact environmentalists and say lobby because, you know, we need to have str stronger enforcement um, in North America. I just directly contacted. Uh, when I was the chief of enforcement, I got involved in some sting operations um, on cool. the border because there was a lot of illegal movement of hazardous waste and so forth. And so I met some really cool guys. That's I remember cool one yeah, yeah. guy who was a prosecutor, um, Italian in New York, and I really need to, to dig him up again. He was so cool. Um, 
And so I just simply formed the first regional network of environmental enforcers. So I formed one for the pollution control enforcers of United States, Mexico, and Canada, and then a network for the those who who stop trade in endangered species. And they were just thrilled because they had tried to do work with the Customs Association in Europe, but nobody would ever give them support. So I just gave them a little bit of, of resources so that they could meet together and do training. Uh, we did training on uh, how to identify threatened birds, reptiles. I still remember one course where this amazing guy, American uh, investigator, um, is it in the United States, are they called capons? Or I know crocodiles. the term. I forget whatever they are. Uh, capon is a type of chicken. In oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> Anyway, whatever they're called. And that's what he would do. He would get into those rings. That was really dangerous work because these are real thugs who would, you know, kill crocodiles and so. But I think they're capons. And, uh, but we did, there was, we did one course on spiders and things. I didn't go to that training because I'm really frightened of spiders, you know, because there's things like tree. You have to, these, I mean, think about border inspectors, how many things they have to inspect. And they had to, like, sometimes identify if they were red-kneed tarantulas. So I didn't go to that yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But uh, we, we held one in Jalisco in uh, Mexico, and it was a place where they brought in birds, where they'd intervene with people in the illegal trade. And I still remember going around this room, and there were these parrots, and they were traumatized. But apparently parrots are incredibly uh, intelligent. And so... You know, they would take birds, like stuff them in, a, you know, like a, a poster thing, and so many of them die. I mean, one of the biggest purchasers of threatened species are Americans. It's just appalling, the trade that goes on. At that time, the trade in illegal species was just as big as guns and drugs. And the uh, then Attorney General of Mexico and the Environment Minister wanted attention to that. But it was hard to get the attention. Then all of a sudden, then people got into terrorism. What we did was we um, did all this training so they would improve the ability of people at borders to try to stop this trade. And also the movement of hazardous waste. So we also had a big project where we are trying to document where the hazardous waste moved across North America, up into Canada. The big sting operation we were involved in when I was the chief of enforcement was... Um, they would, they would, I forget what the title is, but they would put contaminants in fuel and then send it up to um, cement kilns to burn. So that was a big sting operation we did with the Americans. So it was really fun. So I worked with all of these senior enforcers. In fact, one of my proudest possessions is uh, a plaque that I got from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency thanking me for, for, for my support. That was really fantastic work and working with with uh, the Mexican enforcers. Um, sadly, the liberals have not maintained that under the new trade deal, most of the powers. The other important thing in that agreement, um, and I actually got to be part of that when I was assistant deputy minister in Yukon, I got to be in those conversations about what they were going to put in that side agreement on, on environment. And there actually was a provision where citizens anywhere in North America could petition for an investigation whether or not any of the three governments were effectively enforcing their laws. Cool. Um, I don't. I think that might be gone now. Hmm. When when we're talking about 
um, your your colleagues um, and the people you're working with from the environmental community just kind of like abandoning you and not talking to you anymore. I'm curious about who or what you did to keep yourself going in the direction that you were going despite people maybe not understanding. Like, for me, I know that, like, when I decided to step away from, like, what was going on in Toronto for my career and then also, like, you know, not staying in New York and 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 kind of coming back to Edmonton to work on myself because I felt like I was drowning inside. And the uh. funny thing is that I present very well while I'm drowning. And they're like, oh, Hunter's got it under control. But inside I'm like, uh. I'm not doing well. Um, but how did you um, kind of maintain that direction for yourself? What did you turn to? Who did you turn to um, when you're going through that change? I probably end up redirecting my energies and bond- bonding with whoever I'm working with. Um, when I was in Montreal, I had one colleague that I hung out with a lot, and she was lots of fun, and she had dogs, and, and so that was fun. Oh, and then I also, uh, we started a book club, and I I developed a great friend with one who was a lawyer who eventually took over my place at the commission, and she's still a good friend and lives in Ottawa now. But it was tougher overseas because really wasn't anybody to bond with. For example, in uh, Bangladesh, I bonded with my rickshaw driver, Mr. Washing. <laughs> Love it. Sadly, partway through the time I was working there, um, the same thing happened in, in Jakarta when I was living there. One day, some American diplomats come and say, oh, this is terrible that people still have to you know, ride these rickshaws. And so the government just overnight threw all the rickshaws in the harbor. So in, in Bangladesh, people were complaining, oh, it's interfering with traffic, and so my rickshaw driver could no longer go across the main roads. But he took me a number of times to his little community that kept getting smaller and smaller. Um, they lived on the age, edges of these sort of small lakes, and, uh, you know, they had ovens built out of mud, and they lived in these little, you know, like almost the half the size of this, and, and I was to always take them little gifts, but I would just hop in the rickshaw and go into the community. And the people who worked in uh, the High Commission were horrified that I would go off and do this. Wow. But um, to me, what's the point of, you know, living and working in another country? Yeah. Unless you experience the people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's... That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're thinking about the idea of of community and and how, how did that change how you approached your career in, in federal politics. I never intended to have a career in federal politics. Okay. Go on. <laughs> I never had any intention of getting really? elected. I mean, I did lots of lobbying of the federal government and Alberta government. Of course, it was all conservative then. Um, why did I step forward? A lot of people want me to run municipal. They want me to run provincial. No, 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 no. I'm too busy doing what I'm, I'm doing. Um, I saw the specter of a Stephen Harper majority government, and I knew the first thing he would do is shred all the environmental laws that I'd worked so hard to develop. And so I stepped forward, and I was very clear why I was running. I was going to stop a Stephen Harper majority government, and I was going to bring forward a Canadian Environmental Bill of Rights. And I will be able to speak to my bill this June, unless the Liberals prevent me from doing that. I did speak to my bill... Um, the first parliament I was elected and got it through committee where both the liberals and conservatives shredded my bill. And thank heavens it did never come back to the House in that condition because the Harper government fell. Um, 
And then I tabled it again, and then I tabled it again this parliament, and then I was reconfigured, and I will be debating it again because I just profoundly believe that um, the best measures that we ever introduce to protect the environment always come from the community. They always come from the community. Anything that we've done to, you know, to tamper coal-fired power or to finally shut it down sooner, uh, anything that we've done to try to um, reduce the impacts of the oil sands has all come from the community. Very little of that voluntarily came out of governments. And so, you know, I remember representing uh, the farmers when the petrochemical plants were expanding around Lacombe and, uh, and Red Deer and the farmers that, that I worked with. And I think that was the first big hearing that I did with David Estrin, who was, I brought, he ran, he was working at the Canadian Environmental Law Association, and I was running the Environmental Law Center here. And we came in, we did that together, representing the farmers. Um, I still remember I was representing Alberta Wilderness Association or somebody in some big development. And uh, I was cross-examining a witness from Cantaria Energy, and he came up to me afterwards and he said, I can't believe it. You asked me all these tough questions the whole time. You're smiling. <laughs> I still remember him, him saying that, but that's just my demeanor. It was the same thing when I worked in uh, Yukon. We had a pretty crotchety minister, and uh, we, the deputy and I came out of a, a meeting. We did a lot of stuff on fisheries management with Alaska, so it would be federal government, Alaska, Yukon. And uh, we came out of this meeting, and he's laughing. And he said, he says, why do you think the minister doesn't, doesn't like you? And I say, oh, it's because of my lawyer. He says, maybe it's because you're not a real Yukoner. Maybe it's because of this. And then he said, no, it's because you laugh so much. And, wow. And that drove him crazy. But oh my God. that's just uh, who I am. Huh. And, <laughs> you know, I, my last question is, I'm really interested in what, what, what are the small ways that, like, really help give you direction or a sense of community that someone such as myself, who's not a politician, someone who doesn't work in policy or in environmental law, uh, like, how would, how would Hunter help you on like the, that small level, like day to day? Like what would that support look like? Uh, you know, one of the frustrating things is mm-hmm. people always assume that you know exactly what they're doing and what their activities are. And, you know, one of the activities that I always want to go to is the marches for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And, so many things are done by Facebook. I don't do Facebook. You know, a few times I tried to go into Facebook, and every time I went to Facebook, I started a new Facebook page. <laughs> My staff said, that's it. Don't let her be on Facebook anymore. And because I don't go on Facebook, so many people advertise and talk about what, what they're doing. And so I have missed out on a lot of community events, you know, a climate march or whatever. And I think it just doesn't occur to people to contact me. The other really frustrating thing has been um, people won't let me speak because they, they'll they say, well, we don't have the other politicians here. And I'm like, that's their problem. Hmm. And we've, you know, our, too much of our communities become self-censoring. And I think that happened in Alberta a long time ago because we were 
under the gun of conservative governments, and a number of them very repressive. And people became afraid to speak out. When I was away working and finally came back in 2000, one of my uh, dear friends, who's a lifelong biologist and activist, he said, Linda, well, you need to prepare. I said, what are you talking about? You know, I've always worked with you guys. And I realized the difference. Um, all of a sudden, I was afraid to write some things in the paper because I didn't want to prejudice some of the communities that I was working with. And I just think that we've self-silenced. Self hmm. And I think also we don't realize that there are people out there that will support you if you just let them know what your problem is or invite them to come to your thing. And that doesn't mean that I have to have any kind of high profile. I'm just there willing to give the support. I also find that in a lot of uh, the activist things here for, for women's stuff or um, harassment and so forth, they don't want you to speak. Well, we don't want the politicians. Well, this is not, that's, if there's any word that drives me crazy and it should be taken out of the dictionary, is nonpartisan. What does nonpartisan mean? There's nothing wrong with supporting a political party. I mean, that's what our system is. Mm -hmm. I mean, just because I'm NDP doesn't mean I don't respect people who are liberal or people who are green or whatever. And that's what happened, I think, under too many years of being conservative. People all of a sudden said, well, this is a nonpartisan event, so we won't have politicians speaking. And I'm like, what's the point of me being there in Parliament? I'm happy to come. I'm not coming and I'm going to slag another party. I just want to share with you what I see happening there or what you could do to have your voice heard. And I think that that's one of my greatest frustrations in 11 years being elected is this push to be nonpartisan. And um, I think that people should demand to meet with the conservative members here. They should demand to meet with the liberal members who are elected, just in the same way that they, they like to, to, to meet with me. And in fact, that's what I do when people meet with me. I talk to them about Here's the best way to get your message across. I'm not the person to should be the spokesperson. We're in a majority government again. They care more about what you have to say, even than what I have to say. And so I will talk to them a lot about how do you do that? How do you write to a minister? How do you communicate with them? Or how do you get your voice heard? Um, how do you organize people so that they're hearing from more people? Hmm. And I guess I guess it's just in my blood. I can't stop doing it. Well, thanks so much, Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal, for bringing us that amazing conversation. And thanks to Linda Duncan for sharing her time. Be sure to check out our show notes to find out more about Hunter and Jacqueline and the work that they do with their company, Nahewin, and also to find out more about Linda Duncan, too. That brings us to the end of this show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Oh, it was fun. And thanks to all of our wonderful listeners for sharing your time with us, too. If you enjoyed the show, please share this episode with a friend. Those reviews help new listeners find us and brighten our day, too. We're also on Facebook, so you can keep up with us there. We've been your hosts, Anita Bowman. And Andrew Paul. Until, Until next time. time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org.
when in doubt.